We are all, by our natures, prone to works righteousness, really just across the board. We emphasize our good intentions, and we rely on moral behavior as the means of attaining salvation. Even those who aren't religious still lean into their own resources, their own insight, their own philosophy, their own effort to solve the universal problems that all of humanity faces of of conflict and of death. But even those who are religious, uh, those who believe in the supernatural realm, a metaphysical heaven, they too are prone to pursue salvation through good works or, or righteous actions. Naturally, when we are left to ourselves, we assume that we are saved by working for God rather than believing in God. We believe that humanity can work our way up into God's presence in heaven, but what is unique about Christianity among the world's religions is that it is God who works down to humanity into our presence and accomplishes the work that we could never do, living a life of perfect moral righteousness and paying the penalty for our sin. The work that we need to do for salvation, Jesus tells us in the next chapter, is to believe in Jesus. Uh, And even that is a gift of God. But apostolic, historic, orthodox Christianity only holds up if we continue to affirm and understand that Jesus is truly God. There are countless religious movements, both old and new, who make room for Jesus, but they only see him as an an enlightened human, as Gnosticism and Arianism, Ebionism, Islam, Christian spiritualism, uh, progressive Christianity, oneness Pentecostals, Universal Unitarians, Christian Science, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, we could go on forever. There are many groups who reject or deny Jesus's full divinity. And that leaves them all in a state of desperation and works righteousness. Resurrection to eternal life requires rightly embracing Jesus as the God-man. A big idea that holds chapter 5 together might be stated this way. Misunderstanding the identity of Jesus means misunderstanding and rejecting God's grace. This is a complex passage. And I'm going to ask you this morning to pay close attention. And I only wish that I could be a more capable guide as we're walking through this chapter and the time that we have, but at its core, I just want to lay this out up front, Uh, what this chapter is doing is simply reaffirming that those who are trusting in God's Son will evade final judgment and enter into eternal life. So we don't want to get lost in the trees and lose track of the big picture. We're going to walk through John chapter 5 in three sections this morning together. And it'll look something like this. First, receive the merciful God-man with joy, not contempt, verses 1 through 18. Second, the authority to grant life and execute judgment has been delegated to the God-man, verses 19 through 30. 
And third, the scriptures should lead us to rest in Jesus. There's much to do, and we need a lot of help. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us uh, to see who Jesus truly is, to believe the witnesses and the testimonies that you have given to us, uh, primarily that you have provided for us in your scriptures. Would you, by the testimony of your Holy Spirit, affirm to us that we are your children and that we can anticipate a resurrection to life everlasting? Help us this morning. We'll pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First, receive the merciful God-man with joy, not contempt. Verses 1 through 18. First, a sub-point, A, Jesus ushers in the messianic age of redemption. We'll see this in verses 1 through 9, but I just want to read verse 1 for us just to get us started. Verse 1 says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's just helpful to point out that after this does not mean immediately after this. John's gospel is compressing three years of Jesus' earthly ministry into what would take two hours to read in one small book. There's likely a lot of time that has passed between what we read in chapter 4 and what's happening here in chapter 5. But Jesus is at a feast of the Jews, and so he's traveled back up to Jerusalem. He's now at the temple. The Jews had a few different annual religious feasts, and John does not specify which religious feast this one is, so we can safely assume that it doesn't really matter which feast of the year Jesus is at. What's more important is the day of the week that it is, and we'll get to that in a minute. Let's read verses 2 through 9. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. You might have noticed as you were reading through that in the ESV that there is no verse 4. Some manuscripts of John's gospel include more information there, more details. You might have a footnote in your ESV that says something like this, that those who are blind and lame and paralyzed were waiting for the moving of the water for an angel of the Lord who went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. So whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. The King James Version has that included as verse 4, but few scholars believe that that was original to the text, probably just an interpretive description added by some scribes. And so many modern translations don't include that, but it would be confusing if we just skipped that verse. All the numbers would get messed up. So they skip over verse 4. If this whole concept throws you off, wait a few weeks until we get to John chapter 8, and we'll talk about textual criticism in more detail in just a few weeks. What we have in this sign, however, is a miracle. This man who has been unable to move for 38 years, a man who is not pursuing healing, he apparently had given up any hope of being healed, 
And in verse 7, it says that he is helpless. It says there is no one who is able to bring him to a place where this healing might take place. And he can't get there by himself. He's hopeless. He's helpless. And so unlike this official that we read about in chapter 4, who sought out Jesus and asked him for help, this man is not seeking after Jesus. Jesus is seeking after him. This man did not ask Jesus for help. Jesus asked him if he needed help. This man, who was unable to move, who was hopeless, who was helpless, was met by Jesus. And by the power of his word, he was healed. Jesus tells him to get up, take his bed, and to walk. And the man does just that. This sign is just one more additional allusion to the fact that Jesus is God's promised Messiah, who is ushering in the messianic age that had been prophesied for years in Scripture. In particular, this one reminds us of Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah had prophesied about a day when God would do something even greater than he had done for them in redeeming them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. He was going to do something even better than he did in that first exodus. He would visit his people with everlasting joy and with salvation, with liberation. And how would people recognize that this was the case? Chapter 35, verses 5 through 6 say this, Then, at that time, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. So if they had eyes to see it, his people should have recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. He is doing those things that have been prophesied about happening. He had come to usher in this messianic age and to begin a new creation, a new creation that would be free from the effects of sin and the fall. You would think that this act of mercy that Jesus engages here in and of itself, healing this invalid, would be met with joy and with gratitude. Even more so if you understand what the sign is signifying, its implications for all of humanity. But what we find here is some level of indifference from the man who is healed and some level of persecution from the Jewish leaders. We keep reading on to see why. B, Jesus claims divine authority to work on the Sabbath. Starting in verse 9, the second half. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered him, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, Jesus had apparently been doing other miracles on this particular day. It says he was doing these things, multiple miraculous healings. Ordinarily, something to be excited about, but these miracles weren't happening on just any day. These miracles were happening on the Sabbath day. Maybe you remember that one of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Israel was this, 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work. This is a commandment that comes up in the book of Exodus. It's actually mentioned twice in the Old Testament. It comes up in the book of Exodus where they're reminded that God, after he created, rested on the seventh day to enjoy what he had made at creation. And then it comes up again in the book of Deuteronomy. And there they are reminded that God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt with his mighty hand and outstretched arm. So their observance of this Sabbath rest was meant to, to remind Israel that they were dependent upon God for their deliverance. So the whole concept of the Sabbath was a gift from God to his people that was grounded in his active creation and redemption. It was meant to be a weekly reminder that Israel was not God and that they were uniquely, entirely, comprehensively dependent upon God for redemption and salvation. Well, what about the law? Might have been unclear, would require some, some clarifications. Uh, so, God, when you say we can't work, what does that mean? And so, what, what counts as work? And so, over the centuries, there was a legal tradition that was built up around this, interpreting it, marking out eventually what would turn into 39 different classes of work where they were trying to articulate, what does this mean? What is work? And unfortunately, one of those classes that they defined as work included taking or carrying something from one place to another place. Strictly speaking, this man was not breaking the Sabbath. He was not a professional bed mover. So he's not making a living off of picking up his bed and walking. But according to the legal tradition of the day, he was breaking the law. And so when the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem see him doing this, they pull him aside to accuse him of unlawful activity. And the man, who sounds a little bit like Adam at this point, shifts the blame. He says, the man who healed me, that man is the one who told me to get up and walk. And so the authorities' attention shifts away from the man who was healed to the one who told him to walk. Who told you to break the law? And the man didn't even know who it was. It wasn't actually until later that the, the sick man was healed and he ran into Jesus at the temple and recognized him. Jesus met him in the temple and he said, See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Uh, and on first glance, as we're reading that, it might seem as if Jesus is making a, a cause and effect statement about the man's sin and his paralysis. Almost like it's like, stop sinning, or next time your illness will be worse. But we need to remember the physical, spiritual dynamic that Jesus' teaching often takes. I could be wrong, but I understand that something worse that Jesus alludes to there in verse 15 is a reference to being found guilty in his sin on the last day. Sin no more so that you might not be found in your sin on the last day. So this man had been redeemed from his physical bondage, but the more important thing was for him to be redeemed from his spiritual bondage to sin. It's noteworthy that this, this man in our passage nowhere ever makes any statement about belief in Jesus. 
He apparently didn't make the connection that Jesus was more than just a miracle worker, God's Messiah. In fact, this man who was healed turns Jesus into the authorities in order to clear his own name and get Jesus into trouble. And it is here, in this moment, that John's gospel begins to take a very serious turn. Uh, Up until now, Jesus had avoided his interaction with the Pharisees and the legal rulers, but here, he's turning to face it. And this scene as if they are bringing Jesus into court to accuse him of breaking the law by doing these works of healing on the Sabbath. And his defense, which he states in verse 17, really sets them off. Jesus said to them, my father is working until now and I am working. And that statement landed like a lightning strike in the crowd. The Jews knew that God's restful enjoyment of his creation did not mean that he ever ceased his work. God is always working in that sense. Otherwise, creation itself would cease to exist. God is always acting. There's evidence of this that, we were, that they were able to see in real time, even on the Sabbath. There were people that were being born on the Sabbath. There were people who were dying on the Sabbath. These actions of God giving life and entering into judgment of those who have entered into death, well, God doesn't take a day off from that. He is always working, even on the Sabbath. He gives life and he deals with the dead in judgment. So the Jews knew full well that God is working, but it is a divine right that belongs only to God as the creator and sustainer of all things. And so Jesus defends his freedom to work miracles on the Sabbath day by making a case that it's okay because God always works on the Sabbath. This, verse 18, is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They went from wanting to persecute Jesus in verse 16 to wanting to kill him in verse 18. Why? What had turned from an accusation of breaking the Sabbath, a minor infraction, all told, to an accusation of blasphemy. Jesus defended his activity on the Sabbath by declaring his divinity. He met a suffering man, he acted towards him in mercy, and the Jewish authorities made a federal case out of it. And so now everything that remains in the, re- the rest of this chapter is just an extended dialogue from Jesus himself. Uh, these accusations have been made against him, and now he's answering their charges. And the first thing that he makes clear, second, is this. The authority to grant life and execute judgment has been delegated to the God-man. This particular section is one of the most revealing portions in all of Scripture that help us map out the mysterious doctrine of the Trinity. Augustine, one of those great minds from church history, commenting on this passage from the fourth century, said this, Jesus twists us around and juggles with our minds, leading them here and there. But it's all with the intention of exercising our minds to clear them out of unworthy thoughts or false ideas about God so that we can fill them up with thoughts of God as he truly is. 
So the only applicational goal for us in this section is to think carefully and marvel. A, the Son does all that the Father does because He is all that the Father is. Starting in verse 19 through 24. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all might honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I'm indebted to the theologians Bobby Jameson and Tyler Whitman for the wording of subpoint A here. Look down to verse 26, if you can, in your uh, copy of God's word. Verse 26 is an important verse to pull into this. says the father has life in himself and he grants the son also to have life in himself when mothers generate offspring we say that they give birth and there is a word for that for fathers but it's not used very often it's kind of an old-fashioned english term it's begetting the father begets so by way of analogy this helps us understand how the eternal father relates to the eternal son. The father is unbegotten and the son is eternally begotten of the father. He's eternally generated from the father's essence. There was never a time when the son did not exist. His, his sonship is as eternal as the father is himself. So this is how we distinguish the father from the son by their relations eternally of origin. This does not mean that the Son is subordinate or inferior in any way to the Father. They share the same divine essence. And this is some of the biblical content behind what all Orthodox historic Christians confess in the Nicene Creed, which says this, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And because the Son is all that the Father is, the Son does all that the Father does. The Father and the Son are engaged in the same works. You see that there in verse 19. What the Father does, the Son does likewise. In other words, their actions are common to them both. The Father doesn't act separately from the Son. Their works, uh, their, their operations, the things they do are inseparable. But the Father is showing, that's how he acts. You can see it there in verse 20. 
The father acts in his showing, and the son acts in his seeing, as you see it there in verse 19. So it is appropriate to speak of the mode of their actions as being distinct from one another. They share their works in common, and yet it is proper to speak of the actions in distinct ways for each. In other words, the word is with God, and the word is God. The Father and the Son are one, so that if you do not honor the Son, you do not honor the Father. This is a very high Christology that Jesus himself is speaking for us, and it is absolutely foundational to Christianity. Verse 22 says the eternal divine Son possesses the authority to judge just as the Father, but the Father has delegated or appointed judgment to the Son. Why? Well, because the Word became flesh. Jesus is not only truly God, as we have just heard, He is also truly human. So the Father gives authority to judge the Son in His humanity. The unseen Father would manifest judgment through the incarnate Son. Look down to verse 27. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Because he is the son of man. That's an allusion to the book of Daniel, uh, part of which we read this morning in our call to worship text. Daniel, another prophet, spoke about one who would come from heaven in the form of a man who would be distinct from God and yet would be divine who would, give, who would be given dominion and authority and a kingdom by God, the Ancient of Days. He would come to judge the living and the dead. Some would awaken to everlasting life. Some would awaken to shame and everlasting contempt. Let me just try to button this up. Jesus is clarifying that he, as the Son of Man, God-Man, has been given authority to give life and to execute judgment, which are only actions that God can take. He has been charged with breaking the Sabbath, and in his own defense, he says that he is God, and he's working with divine authority. And this authority has been delegated to him as the God-man in the present, and it is also going to be true in the future in a greater sense, which brings us to be... The believer's resurrection comes in two stages, starting in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus has authority to grant resurrection life now spiritually through regeneration, which he interacted with Nicodemus about in chapter 3. The one who hears God's word and believes it has passed from death into life. 
That hour is coming and is now here, Jesus says, when the dead will hear the voice of God and they will live. That's verse 25. And then in verse 28, he says, an hour is coming, a different hour, when there will come a physical resurrection, either to life or to judgment. So there is a spiritual resurrection when we come to spiritual life to believe in Jesus, and there is a physical resurrection at the end of time when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, as we have confessed together even this morning. Both of these are probably allusions to what Jesus is meaning when he talks about showing works that are revealing greater things that he will do in verse 20. He's going to provide a very visible parable of what this looks like in chapter 11 when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Here's what we need to understand. Only those who hear and believe the voice of the Son of God will be raised to the resurrection of life once, spiritually speaking, at regeneration, when we are born again and we believe, and then physically on the last day. Those who reject the Son remain in their judgment and will only face one resurrection on the last day, which is the resurrection to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, these are astounding things for Jesus to claim. By what authority does he say this? Surely this must have landed on the Jewish authorities like a Mack truck. How dare you say these things? These are extremely bold claims, which brings us to the final portion of chapter 5. Third, the scriptures should lead us to rest in Jesus. A, we have sufficient testimony about Jesus' true identity. I'm going to read 31 through 40. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John. He's borne witness about the truth. And not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So if we're continuing to picture this as a court case, Jesus has given his own self-defense, and now he's calling up some character witnesses to the stand. It's not only Jesus who is saying these things about himself. There are others. I count at least three witnesses here in just this passage. The prophet John the Baptist, mentioned in verse 33. Then there are the works that the Father gave to him to accomplish, like healing an invalid on the Sabbath. Those testify to his identity, verse 36. And then third, God himself testifies through the scriptures, verse 37 through 39. Uh, if these religious leaders actually understood the scriptures that they're trying to uphold, they would be embracing Jesus, not bringing him up on charges. But it's clear, according to Jesus, 
that they do not have his word abiding in them because they don't recognize the word made flesh who is standing right in front of them. They search the scriptures because they think that the scriptures would instruct them in what to do and what not to do in order to have eternal life. Almost as if by God's grace and even with his help, they might be able to actually fully obey God's law. Almost as if they could actually achieve personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That they could always avoid what God forbids and always do what God commands. If they were more realistic, they would realize, just like you and I must realize, that we all consistently break God's law in thought and in word and in deed. To rightly interpret the scriptures... We must allow them to help us discover the helpless and hopeless nature of our hearts apart from God's intervening, supernatural, divine, sovereign grace. We would be lost without anyone to be able to bring us to a place of healing. Were the not the right man on our side, our striving would be losing Who is that right man, you might ask? Christ Jesus. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win our battle. We have sufficient testimony about who Jesus is, but we are prone to reject it. We are prone to twist it. And here is such a blatant example. They had turned the gift of Sabbath rest into a burdensome work. Isn't that what we're all prone to do with Scripture? To turn it into a mere checklist and drain all of the life out of it? If all of our resolutions for growth in Christ's likeness this year are not built upon the solid rock of Christ's finished work, they will be built upon sinking sand. Now, to be sure, we must walk in a way that is worthy of the manner of the gospel, but we are not able even to get up and walk until he tells us, get up and walk. Only then are we free to walk in those good works that he has prepared for us beforehand. And all those works are only ever an evidence of our salvation. They are never the basis of our salvation. If we try to attain righteousness through obedience to the law, we will be condemned by that very same law, B. Legalists will be condemned by the very law they profess to keep. 41-47 Jesus continues, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How could you believe when you receive glory from one another? You do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. He wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how do you believe my words? The religious authorities have judged Jesus, and he has very efficiently turned the tables on them. He actually is the one who will sit over them in judgment, both now and in the last day. But he will not be the prosecuting attorney. Did you notice that? That would be Moses, figuratively speaking. Maybe you remember earlier in John's gospel, it said that the law was given through Moses and grace and truth 
come through Jesus Christ. They had set their hope on Moses. If you remember, he did intercede for Israel when they were at Mount Sinai. He interceded on their behalf. He mediated so that God would not destroy them at Sinai. Maybe he would do that again in the last day. Maybe he would defend them in the final judgment. But if they truly believed what Moses wrote, they would believe Jesus' words. Moses is not the guy. Moses wrote about Jesus. That is an amazing statement. Moses wrote about Jesus. And that might be a direct reference to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses talks about this greater prophet who would rise up from within Israel. But maybe there are other places where Moses wrote about Jesus. In Genesis, where he is the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Or in Exodus, where he is pictured as bread from heaven, which would sustain life. Or in Leviticus, as he is the spotless lamb who takes away sin. Or in Numbers, as the one who is lifted up on a pole, who would absorb the serpent's venom for all who would look and believe. Moses wrote about Jesus everywhere, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. This is a complicated chapter, so let me just recap it in brief. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, which makes the Pharisees very angry. And Jesus defends himself by saying it's okay because he shares God's authority over the Sabbath. He then explains that he is God, and yet he is distinct from the Father. And as the divine Son of Man, he has been delegated authority to give life and to judge humanity. And God is giving that resurrection life now, spiritually, through his Son, by the Spirit, in regeneration. But a time is coming where there will be a physical resurrection, either to life or to judgment. And the Jewish leaders had ample witness testimony to receive Jesus as the God-man, to receive all that he is saying as being true, but they did not because they did not have God's word, life, or love abiding in them, Jesus says. Instead, they hoped to be saved through obeying a short-sighted interpretation of the Scripture's instruction. But their failure to uphold God's law perfectly would actually be what accused them on the day of judgment. Had they rightly interpreted and received the scriptures, they would recognize and receive Jesus. Jesus ends here by saying his glory is not dependent upon people believing in him. Jesus' honor and his glory and his status are secure in himself. There is no fear of man in Jesus. There is only fear of God. But it's not so with some of these authorities. Some might have believed in Jesus, and yet they were too afraid of how they might be perceived by others if they stepped out in faith because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's easy to get pushed into groupthink. You start to fear what other people are going to think about you. And friends, the pressure of the world will always drive you to put your hope in your own efforts and to reject God's grace. That's the stream that we are constantly living in. To keep up outward appearances so that others might think highly of us rather than humbly submitting ourselves before God so that we might be exalted in Christ on the last day. Maybe you're considering embracing Jesus, but you're concerned what your unbelieving friends and family might think about you. Maybe you were caught up in the new atheism of the early 2000s. 
And if you reverse course, people might think, man, he's being inconsistent. Maybe you grew up in what was actually a cult and not historic Orthodox Christianity. Maybe you've been tempted to get caught up in the evangelical movement today because it's the latest fad. Maybe you've put your hope in science's ability to preserve your life. And maybe you're just a flat-out hopeless nihilist who has great fear of venturing out in hope and being let down. Whatever your circumstance, here's a key takeaway for all of us. Joyfully set your hope on the God-man, the eternal life-giver and judge. Our rest, in its fullest, most complete sense, is not physical but spiritual. Our rest does not come from not moving something from one place to the other. Our rest comes from not trying to earn righteousness apart from Christ. Our rest comes from leaning into Jesus' finished work on our behalf, entrusting that his death was our judgment, that his life is our life, and that his new creation is our final destination. Praise be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.